All right, we're going to pick up a uh, fifth letter to the church of Sardis. Some emerging themes that are jumping off the pages of Scripture as we go each week through a letter. Uh, one being that Jesus is not an absentee father. Jesus knows where his kids are and knows what they are up to. And so uh, in a world that feels isolated and alone and unknown, we're reminded that as his sons, as his daughters, we are never alone. Another emerging theme that is jumping off the pages is, is that God's people are going to face opposition. And, and through these letters, Jesus' focus is not on fixing or correcting or ending uh, the opposition. His focus is not just making his people's lives easy his, his focus is on building faith fortifying and sending out his people to accomplish his global grand life-saving rescue effort and so um as we consider what spiritual readiness emergency preparedness looks like in this letter written to bring hope to god's people in difficult times uh, we're reminded that that if our focus or if as re, as a result of reading revelation we pay more attention to the newspaper and more attention to current events than we do our own hearts our own responsiveness to the spirit's call that we're missing the point of the book in a world that feels scattered distracted and preoccupied he gives us focus clarity of purpose Another one is that um, unjust rulers are the norm. Pick an emperor, pick a Caesar, they're all bad. Uh, so unjust rulers are the norm, but it doesn't matter who the emperor is. It doesn't matter who the governor is. It doesn't matter who sits on whatever throne or what legislation is passed. We're reminded over and over and over, Jesus is king. So in a world that is freaking out at everything he is peace he is rest he is strength right no leader no presidential candidate no international superpower no super majority can thwart his purposes or his plans for his people for our world problem is is as we found out with a snowstorm if you're not prepared Bad things can happen. We found out with the fires. If you're not prepared, bad things can happen. And so in this book of encouragement, there's some warning. Be prepared, people. Be prepared. In our chapter today in Revelation 3, we're going to see that um, we're going to get a picture of, of a church that isn't ready and Jesus' remedy for their lack of preparation. So if you will, join me in Revelation 3. Uh, we'll read through this letter uh, to the church at Sardis. It says this. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Verse 2, he says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. 
hold fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not yet uh, soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, uh, using a, a title uh, that harkens back to chapter 1, the one who uh, holds the seven spirits of God and also the seven spirits of the church, uh, a reference to uh, angels, leaders, those who uh, Jesus is accomplishing his work for his people and through his people uh, through. Uh, and then this idea of the seven spirits of God, there's a variety of ways that, that people have interpreted that. Um, the simplest from my study is just the that Jesus comes with the full weight uh, of the spirit, the work that he does uh, uh, through the power uh, of the spirit, the knowledge that he has of them through uh, the strength of the Spirit. And so Jesus comes to this church and with all knowledge of things visible and things invisible, things that they've said and things that have just in their minds and in their hearts and in their motives, he's seen all of it. And he says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but in fact, you are dead. Hard to really say um, uh, completely what marks their deadness. Um, John doesn't say much here, and uh, other uh, writers in the first and second century don't point to specific things. And, and so the um, readers were left to sort of just um, assume that it's general wor worldliness that might be consistent with these other letters. And so let's take a quick look at Sardis, and I think that sheds a little bit of light uh, on some of the things that, that Jesus must have been referencing. Um, Sardis is a it's super cool city. It's one worth Google searching um, because it was built like 1,500 feet on this rock uh, above these plains. And so on three sides, it had uh, vertical rock faces that were deemed essentially uh, impossible to ascend. And so they weren't even guarded. It, it was such an impenetrable fortress. They were so overconfident. They were so arrogant. They trusted so much so uh, in their city and its fortifications that they didn't even guard three sides uh, of the city. It was only accessible by one of the four uh, sides, and even that side was very difficult to, to navigate, especially difficult if you were coming with an army. So uh, the, the people themselves were um, very confident, very arrogant. Uh, they trusted in their fortifications. So not only did they trust in their walls for their protection, for their safety, they were also very affluent. Many think that uh, Sardis is where the first gold and silver coins were minted. Archaeologists have found Hundreds of, of crucibles where uh, precious metal uh, was refined. Uh, it was a center uh, for, uh, for wealth, and that was the center of the garment uh, trade, uh, and that's referenced uh, in other places in Scripture. Uh, and, and so we see a very affluent community right, who has the capacity to enjoy the best of 
of what's available and, and a very strong, a very independent, a very self-reliant. And, and that's their background. And, and so what's interesting about their history is as you read about the history of Sardis, you'll see that they were conquered a number of times. And it was largely in part because of their hubris, their arrogance. They thought they were untouchable because of all of these things, uh, only to find out that in their arrogance, in their self-sufficiency, uh, they were conquered uh, very easily uh, as they ceased to pay attention and be concerned uh, with the threat uh, of the enemy. And so just as we think about worldliness in this context with this background of, of arrogance and affluence, um, trusting in the wrong things, chasing the wrong things, um, we could use today uh, for a definition of worldliness something to the effect of, of wanting or desiring or chasing things that God says are bad for us, are destructive for us, right? We did that last night, trick-or-treating. We chased, we ran after things that aren't good for our teeth. Um, chasing things that aren't good for us, trusting in things that will fail us, right? That is part of the history of Sardis. Uh, it's not new to the Bible. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip to Isaiah 30. Really cool chapter uh, that mimics some of these same aspects of worldliness. Let me read just a few verses from Isaiah chapter 30. Uh, I'll start in verse 1. Listen to this. Woe, or warning, watch out, yikes. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. To those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. Isaiah 20 or 30 verse 3. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. The warning is to uh, God's people who are trusting in someone who will fail them. They're going to Pharaoh for protection. Where are they going to Pharaoh for protection? They don't want to live under God's rule. They want to live with a certain level of prosperity and autonomy. They want to call the shots. And they have turned from the Lord and they run to Pharaoh. And so we see that they are chasing the things that the Lord says are destructive. They are trusting in what the Lord says will not work. And in this context, Jesus says, you have a good reputation, oh, but you're dead. You have a good reputation, but you are dead. So there's a, a significant level of self-deception here for this church of Sardis, right? They had to have been surprised to get this letter. They had to have been shocked to be told, you have a good reputation, reputation. you're thought well of in culture, but you are dead. And, and so we, got, we have to ask ourselves, is it possible in any way, shape, or form that this could be true of the church in the West? Is it possible in any way, shape, or form this could be true of the church in Roseburg? Is it possible in any way, shape, or form this could be true of us? Self-deception possible in us. I'm speaking broadly, maybe, and then, and then more personally. Um, Barna Research Indus uh, Institute Research House does a lot of good work um, published some stuff in the last few years that 
that would suggest that Christians, evangelical Christians, see themselves in a much higher light, a much more noble light than their non-Christian peers, friends, and neighbors. Uh, There's a whole bunch of categories that revealed this, but just a couple for the sake of time. When asked uh, about describing evangelical Christians as generous, as encouraging, more than 50% of evangelical Christians said, absolutely, that's us, of course, that's me. Uh, about 6% of their non-Christian peers said that was true of the evangelical Christians that they know. Pretty big disparity in how evangelical Christians see themselves and what the data suggests non-Christians perceive those same uh, people. Um, Self-deception? Maybe. At least possible. Right? Uh, as it pertains to worldliness, chasing the things that the world calls good, that, that God calls bad. Uh, this was a, an interesting stat I, f- I found on, on worldliness, at least as it pertains to a worldview. Uh, Barna published a Barna Trends report uh, for 2018, and in that report, uh, they said 17%, right? Less than one in five. 17% of persons who say that their faith is very important to them and attend church regularly actually have a biblical worldview. Less than five who say, yes, I go to church regularly, and my faith is very important to me, actually have a biblical worldview. Here's how they defined biblical worldview. Uh, Believing that absolute moral truth exists, that God says it is, it is, regardless of where you agree or not, absolutely. Uh, The Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles that it teaches. Uh, Satan is considered to be real, a real being or a force, not merely a symbol or not merely symbolic. Uh, a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or to do good works. That Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth and God is all-knowing, all-powerful creator uh, of the world who still rules the universe today. So less than one in five held to a biblical world view with that being sort of the measure uh, for what a biblical worldview is. Uh, how about us How about us personally? If, if broadly there's some evidence to indicate that that it's possible um, that those who identify as followers of Christ, as evangelical Christians, um, may in in some cases be deceived. And if worldliness, if if our worldview seems to more likely, more resemble culture uh, than God's word, uh, what about what about personally? How do we bring this into our own lives? Do we ourselves chase the things that God says are bad? Do we ourselves trust the things that the Lord says will fail, and the only way I guess I, I know kind of how to work through that is is well, let's just kind of compare our lives to Scripture. Matthew five is a great place to go to to just compare our lives to Scripture and say, is this generally true of me? Is this generally true of my desires? Is this generally true of of my heart? Is this generally true of my behaviors? Or is this, let's be honest, is this not me? Uh, Matthew five, uh, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven. Uh, Are we able to enjoy, be satisfied, be comfortable, be at rest, be at peace with a, a spiritually impoverished condition, recognizing that we bring nothing spiritually to the table. We have nothing to offer God to where God's like, yes, I got him. I got her. One point for me. 
or do we find ourselves striving and straining to prove worthy, to earn some sort of a right standing or at least justification in our mind that other people need a whole lot of grace and I just need a tiny bit. I'm most of the way there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4 and 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so we have Jesus as this extraordinary example of of being spit on, of being beaten, uh, of being lied about, of being accused and not defending himself, not fighting back, having the strength through and choosing, uh, restraining himself uh, from using it. Is that meekness present in our posture right now uh, towards our neighbors in the political sphere, in our conversations at work? Is that gentleness something that overflows out of us, or does that really require us to clench our fists, sit on our hands in order for just a little bit of gentleness and meekness to get out? Are we more like culture who fights, yelp? yells, screams, demands, defends its rights, liberties. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Is that something that's heavy on your heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, longing for that, recognizing that's fulfilling? Or do we want to, it's hunting season, do we want to get a buck? It's the end of the year. Do we want a promotion in January? Some of us aren't feeling well. Do we just want a clean bill of health and everything would just be okay if we just had a clean bill of health? Do we long to just simply be past this weird season uh, of angst, just on the other side uh, of the election? Do we find ourselves hungering and thirsting for these temporary things or hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Because in our hearts, we truly believe that as he forms us, as he shapes us, the outcome of that is a greater sense of his presence, true peace in the midst of crazy where we trying to manage and fix crazy and ignore what he wants to do on the inside. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How do you respond when you're wronged, when you're attacked? Do we delight to show mercy to others because of the mercy we've been shown? Blessed are the pure, verse 8, pure in heart, for they will see God. Are we increasingly finding alignment of God's word in our hearts and our desires and our habits, things that we pursue, chase after? Or is following Jesus kind of like a game of hide and seek, right? Hide my sins and seek yours. Nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Are you known as a peacemaker at work? Are you known as a peacemaker on social media? Are we quiet long enough? Do we stop persuading, stop talking, stop uh, trying to um, convince long enough to seek a greater good, to make peace? 
Verse 10, blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do we want what everybody else wants? Stock market up, peace in our land, uh, home prices to keep going up, uh, peace, comfort, is that security, bigger walls? Is that what we is that what we want? Or do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do we count it blessed to consider perse- being persecuted for that righteousness? Do we find ourselves hiding, hiding our faith? shrinking back, to not be noticed, to not be pointed out, to not stick out for fear of persecution. Many of us have lived like the old Burger King slogan, uh, have it your way, and have discovered that after years and years and years of trying to have it our way, we are spiritually malnourished. What is Jesus' remedy for those who are spiritually dead? Uh, Let's work in verses 2 and 3. His remedy to to those who are are dead, his remedy to those who are maybe looking around their gathering and saying, I wonder, is that me? Is is that us? Is is that you? Uh, How do we engage with this idea of spiritual deadness? Because for us, some of us this morning are in that category of spiritually dead. Some of us, uh, there's embers of faith still burning uh, and, and we're wondering, how, how do we navigate this? How do, how do we rekindle that? Uh, here's what Jesus says. Wake up, verse 2. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And I think that's where that picture of embers is useful. The fireplace, uh, you haven't looked at it for a couple hours. There's just a few small uh, logs burning and maybe just uh, a few pieces. Uh, strengthen what remains Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I come to you. Jesus says, return to spiritual vigilance. Return to spiritual vigilance. Uh, Philippians 1.27 talks about it as living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says no, no matter No matter where you're at, no matter where you've been, it's not too late, right? There's a very stern warning in this passage. You're going to miss the benefits of everything Jesus came to do. There's a very, it's an enormously stern warning, but at the same time, he's saying no matter where you are, no matter how long you've been there, it's not too late. Remember, return, repent. It's not too late. And so maybe for some of us, that's just the message that we need to hear today. It's not too late. Remember, return, repent to spiritual vigilance. Some of us live our lives as if we're wandering through the Cruz Farms corn maze, right? Different turns, never getting where we want to go. Trying different paths, never getting where we need to get. He says it's not too late. Remember, wake up, return, strengthen what remains, keep the commands that you have heard, Live a life of perpetual repentance. Notice what's absent from Jesus' remedy. He doesn't implore them to leave town. He doesn't tell them to overthrow uh, the Romans, to stop paying taxes. 
Again, he's focusing on their hearts. Spiritual revival uh, is not contingent upon Caesar recognizing this group of people and validating their beliefs or their mission or their religion. Spiritual revival has never been about kings or presidents or, or rulers bowing their knees to Jesus. It's always been about God's people in their hearts, first and foremost, submitting their lives to him and responding to his spirit. And so that is the trend, that is the theme, that's what emerges from these seven letters. In Revelation, a book that so often drives us to a thousand different sources. What does this person say? And how do they interpret those events? And what about this nation? And what about that country? Jesus keeps coming back. It's not about the rulers. It's not about legislation. It's not about political powers. It's about God's people making him Lord of their hearts. The reward, verse 5, to the one who is victorious. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. He says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. This idea of clothed in white, um, eternal holiness, uh, eternal purity. Your name secure, your inheritance secure secure your position as a citizen of heaven secure not something that can be taken not something that can be snatched not something that can be stolen secure jesus says he himself will advocate for recommend present name before the father so if you're here this morning and and you feel like you're on the outside looking in there is very little spiritual fruit cultivating in your heart and life. Jesus constantly and maybe always has gotten your leftovers. There's very little alignment between his word and, and your life. And, and maybe uh, that's an aha moment for you this morning. And, and so there's a reminder in that that it's not too late. And, and so this idea that, that we have all rejected our savior we have all said i want to live my own way i want to chase what i want i want to call the shots i want autonomy i want to decide for myself i want to make my own path we have all gone our own way and we're reminded that while we were still sinners christ died for us and so uh prior to receiving prior to responding to what he has called us to uh, we really live in this state of of enslavement of entrapment to sin such that we're we're defined by, we're controlled by uh, our desires, our impulses, uh, sin. We just keep destroying, we keep breaking uh, things and, and relationships and nothing works. Again, like that corn maze, we're just wandering endlessly, never getting out. We're, we're entrapped, uh, ensnared, and, and as a result, we live lives of, of guilt, uh, of shame. We carry these enormous burdens with us and crushes ourselves and it, and it crushes those in our wake and so jesus comes perfect sinless life right if we're living like someone on death row uh, awaiting execution just trying to enjoy the ride jesus execution jesus life was the worthy substitute in our place his perfect righteousness covers over our feeble attempts to try to be good enough 
So we're, we're rescued from this entrapment. We're rescued from being ensnared. We're rescued from being enslaved to sin. And, and the distance between us and God is, is, is torn up. And we're, we're back together with him and back together with each other. And Jesus says to the one who is victorious, to the one who overcomes, to that person, your name is sealed forever in the book of life. Right? Think about even the next couple of weeks and things that you might be concerned about changing and changing for the worse, whatever direction you're intending uh, to vote. You understand that, that everything is up in the air in this life, and it will always be that way. Your name being written in the Lamb's book of life is secure, is eternal forever. Jesus calls us to repent, his, right? Our job is to repent. His job is to save. Our job is to say, I'm sorry, and turn and follow him. His job is to hold on tightly to us. Some of us feel like we're just floating through life, just trying to get by day after day. Jesus, like a cruise ship coming and picking us up as we're hanging to a two-by-four out in the ocean with very little to hang on to, Jesus wants to swoop in and pick us up. And hold us close. For those of you who are not on the outside looking in, for those of you who are secure in your salvation, are, are confident that spiritual fruit is being cultivated, and, and you feel more like, I kind of feel like I'm living in this Sardis situation where I see spiritual deadness all around, um, the encouragement is to fan that flame, kindle what remains, strengthen yourself and to be reminded that we are God's agents of change for this world. Uh, It's fascinating that he doesn't tell this remnant of those who have not soiled their garments, in other words, those who have remained faithful. He doesn't tell them to go and berate uh, everyone else. He calls them to kindle up that flame that in their example, in their faith, in God's work, in their hearts and lives, they're going to become a purer reflection of Jesus and that purer reflection of Jesus is going to be attractive and it's going to be compelling. It's going to be so countercultural that those without peace are going to go, how? How are you at rest? How are you not freaking out? Those who feel aimless and scattered and distracted are, how are you able to stay this course? Those that feel isolated and alone and abandoned, how, how are you pulling it together and as we become a pure reflection of Christ all of those things that uh, those not following him so desperately want become clear and visible uh, in our lives. It's compelling. It's attractive. Sometimes when we think about sort of this pivot, turn and follow him, we think, really, God's not interested. He's called my name a thousand times, a thousand times. I've had my phone on do not disturb. I've said not interested, maybe tomorrow. Um, We read a little bit from Isaiah 30. Let me read a few more verses. I just want you to see God's posture towards you. Again, this is to unrepentant Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee You have said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. Verse 17, a thousand will flee the threat of one and the threat of five. You will flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Verse 18, yet, despite all that, despite that they went to 
Pharaoh looking for help instead of turning to God, in spite that they wanted to live their way instead of under the kind, protective rule of the Lord. Verse 18, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Isaiah 30, 18, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. As we move into next week, some terrified, some not. Some very interested and concerned, some not. Some thinking everything that we hold dear is on the line. Some thinking nothing that we hold dear is on the line. Some hardly able to sleep at night, some getting 12 beautiful hours of REM. In all cases, in all of the seven letters, it doesn't matter who Caesar is. Jesus is king. God's people's hope has never been in, in who has ruled over them. Um, ruler after ruler after ruler after ruler, the entire Old Testament, right? Wicked ruler, wicked ruler, wicked ruler. God's work goes forward. His work starts in his people's hearts, being responsive to his voice. Let's do our uh, civic duty. Let's be involved. Let's hold a much higher vision, mission, purpose, a much grander purpose for our lives where we are more interested in God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven than having maybe a legislator that that sees things our way, where we would so much rather see people called out of darkness into light than even just seeing peace uh, in our land. So uh, wherever you're at, as, as we come into a very unusual week, um, pray from these letters that, that there would be a sense that we're not alone. He sees He sees everything. He's involved in it all. And in a world scattered and distracted, he gives us a focus and a purpose and mission. Uh, and that we're reminded that no matter who sits on the throne, Jesus is king. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your timely word. Would you prompt uh, through your spirit Lord, us to respond to your word. Lord, if we are those who believe we're alive and are bear no fruit, or we're actually uh, on the verge of or, or dead, uh, Lord, that you would awaken our spirits right now, that we would awake and re- remember and repent. Lord, for those that are holding fast to you, Lord, may you continue to encourage us and remind us as we see these broken cities that you deeply love, that it's not too late, Lord, that no matter where we've been, we still have the opportunity to be a part of your good plan. Lord, may we trust you with our whole lives. In Jesus' name we pray.